There are now three promising COVID-19 vaccines that tout a 90% plus efficacy. Some warming numbers when you consider the chill of the pandemic continues to hit Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, and now the Atlantic bubble is on hiatus. This has been a global effort to find a vaccine for COVID. Labs around the world have been keeping the lights on at night to bring us one step closer to the end. Canada has inked deals with seven different manufacturers for a total of 414 million doses, enough to vaccinate the whole country five times over. Now, when we did the podcast, only the Pfizer vaccine was known, but with the other two, the unpublished vote question can refer to the others. If a vaccine is safe and effective, according to Health Canada, how soon do you feel it will be available to the public? And after three or three months, 15.1%, six months, and overwhelmingly 37.7%, 12 months, just 1.9%, longer than 12 months, I found surprising, 34%, and undecided 11.3%. Now, however you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote. And email your MP to tell them why. Now, when it comes to a safe and effective COVID vaccine, the discovery, testing, and approval are needed. But what are the distribution challenges of getting it to 38 million people? Manufacturing. Is there enough capacity to produce? And an interesting angle from a new Duke University report, which finds first world countries are hedging their bets on acquiring it. Now, joining us to discuss all this, I am pleased to be joined by Ian Colbert. He's executive director of the Canadian Public Health Agency. Elise Legault is the policy and advocacy manager with ONE. And Dr. Jason Nickerson is the humanitarian affairs advisor with Doctors Without Borders. And I want to thank uh, all three of you for joining us this evening. And let's talk about distribution first. And Ian, this will be the largest public health effort. Uh, Is Canada ready for this? No, <laughs> quite simply, we're not. No. Um, depending on which vaccine we're talking about, uh, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna products both have to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius, and we do not have a supply chain that will support that. Uh, the AstraZeneca product is something that's more in line with the seasonal influenza vaccine that can be stored at uh, from 2 to 8 degrees Celsius. So your traditional refrigerators uh, will, will take care of that. Uh, but as far as the size and scope, of manufacturing and distribution to actually inoculation sites of how many um, uh, um, uh, testing, uh, uh, sorry, uh, um, vaccinations uh, locations we're going to have. It is unparalleled in Canadian history. Uh, So we have a lot of work to do in the coming months. And, 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 you know, Elise, I imagine uh, one challenge for, uh, for Canada in getting the, this distributed across the country is obviously geography is a challenge considering the size of the country, coast to coast, and then, of course, up to the coast uh, towards the Arctic. Uh, what kind of a, a challenge will this be for Canada's Indigenous people? Uh, oh, sorry. That's I. I I'm sure it's going to be a huge challenge. I must say, I'm not an expert in uh, in the distribution of vaccines necessarily uh, in Canada. But uh, what's going to be important is also uh, for for the government to decide who's going to get the vaccine first as a priority. And uh, there has been some guidelines that have been interim guidelines that have been published recently in terms of who's going to get it first. And there are, there's going to be question about whether indigenous communities should be, should be quite mm-hmm. on top of the list of getting it first, along with healthcare workers, 
um, and and the most at risk, the elderly people with pre-existing conditions. So um, I, I don't think we know exactly who's going to get it in, in in what order as well. We have a, some rough idea. And, and what do you think, Jason? In terms of distribution in Canada, yes. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I can certainly speak from the perspective of uh, Doctors Without Borders (MSF). I mean, we're we're a, a, a medical humanitarian organization that works in more than seventy different countries um, under really quite difficult field circumstances, um, and and you know, we're a major uh, a provider of, of vaccinations, both preventatively uh, and in response to disease outbreaks. And you know, certainly, I can say that for us. Um, you know, vaccinating tens or, or hundreds of thousands of people. This is a massive undertaking. You know, you're talking about major supply chain requirements. You're talking about significant cold chain requirements. Um, and that's for a, a, a normal set of vaccinations. Um, so if we're talking about something like the Pfizer or the Moderna product um, that, as Ian mentioned, you know, has really significant cold chain requirements down to minus 70, um, this is a, a significant challenge for any health system anywhere in the world. Um, and to be honest, we have actually very limited experience as a global public health community uh, in, in trying to do this with vaccines that require cold chain storage um, down that, that cold. The, you know, sort of immediate example that I can point to is the Ebola vaccine, uh, which is actually mm-hmm. a Canadian development and, and discovery, the RVSV Zebov vaccine. Um, that has cold chain requirements of somewhere around minus 80 degrees Celsius. Um, and that's been deployed in clinical trials in, in West Africa. Um, and then more recently uh, in, in uh, the last two uh, Ebola outbreaks in Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and it, so I, I worked uh, during one of those uh, outbreaks last year in, in North Kivu. Um, and I can tell you, you know, like it's it, this is a, a significant undertaking to actually set up the infrastructure that's required to maintain that level of of cold uh, storage, and um, because it's not just about you know one freezer or or, or one sort of set mm-hmm. of cold chain. You're you're actually talking about how do you get the vaccine from the manufacturing site onto a plane, distributed to you know distribution centers that are kind of central, and then out to additional. Uh, levels of additional storage and then ultimately out to the field and out to, you know, the vaccination sites that Ian was talking about. So it's not just kind of like one freezer that you you need to have in place. You're actually talking about a lot of different kinds mm-hmm. of, of cold chain technologies that all need to, to work really in sync. So, you know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a country like Canada or, or any any other country, this is a really massive undertaking, and it's going to require a lot of planning. And, and as Ian said, you know, infrastructure that that currently doesn't exist because it hasn't had to exist. Uh, now, Ian, uh, it, like we talked about the supply chains. There's public. There's a public supply chain and a private supply chain. What's what's the difference for for the viewers? Well, uh, certainly the. Uh, the, the private chain I, I would mm-hmm. be from the manufacturer to uh, whatever government is purchasing it from then the, the, the public supply chain kicks in. So uh, you're right. Uh, there's two different systems in play here and they have to be really closely uh, synchronized so that you don't have any gaps in, in the, uh, in the supply chain at all. Uh, it's certainly one of the reasons that the challenges posed by um, the cold chain requirement of minus 70 degrees is one of the reasons why 
uh, we're glad to see that there are so many vaccine candidates uh, in the running because hopefully there's going to be a multitude of vaccines that get approved uh, for COVID-19, which will have different profiles, which will be more appropriate for uh, different uh, target populations. And we won't necessarily have to have these uh, probably incredibly expensive cold chain and uh, uh, system set up uh, all around the world because, quite honestly, it's just not feasible. Oh, definitely not. And, and uh, Elise, I imagine there's uh, quite a few uh, nations around the world that would have a lot, a lot of difficulty in adapting or, or getting the, you know, the the infrastructure to hold a vaccine at minus seventy. For sure, that's the problem. Although, as Jason pointed out, it is interesting that the Ebola vaccine was did require a quite uh, cold, uh, cold chain uh, uh, system as well, and it, and it, and they did manage to to deliver uh, uh, it everywhere. So it could be surprising that sometimes these experience could be it, it could be that in some developing countries there is more experience in these types of vaccines than than there there could be in Canada. That being said, it will be so. It is possible. It does happen, um, but it will be it will be a huge challenge. So uh, there are definitely people that think that. Maybe other of the candidates like AstraZeneca that we got fairly good news from um, uh, today could be better suited in in uh, in developing countries. And another aspect of it, uh, of course, is the price as well. Um, mm-hmm. Both uh, Moderna, I think, is the most expensive of of, of the of the lot. I, I don't know the price by heart, but I think it's maybe between thirty five and fifty dollars a dose or something. Jason, you would know that, but um, um, AstraZeneca at least is is as as promised to sell it around three dollar uh, a dose at least in developing countries they're selling it at cost uh, so that makes a huge difference in which vaccine is is uh, is most appropriate in in different circumstances as well so three dollars is the cost but in third world that's that's what they get but uh, and I think uh, Jason that's where we're we're talking about here is you know uh, you're going to charge a first world country thirty five dollars or fifty dollars for a shot when you're charging third world country. Um, to me, I, I, I don't see, is there not a lot of government investment in here to start, start these research and development to get there? And why would those who are doing that getting hammered just as bad? Yeah. I mean, there's been a tremendous amount of public funding that's gone into the development of COVID vaccines as well as COVID therapeutics, uh, diagnostic tests, uh, even new models of, of ventilators that, um, you know, have been scaled up relatively quickly. I mean, I think that this is in many ways an unprecedented public investment of funding uh, in, a, in a very small amount of time uh, towards one very particular disease. And, and I would say, you know, wholly appropriate as well. I mean, this is one of the roles that government should be playing uh, in responding to to uh, infectious diseases and, and health concerns in general. Um, you know, I think we need, in fact, more of this investment earlier on so that we're investing in this capacity and investing in, in the kinds of vaccines and other health technologies that we need uh, to be able to prepare uh, so that we can scale up for, for future pandemics because there will be more. Um, so, you know, the, the, the argument that I think that you're alluding to is the fact that the public is paying, mm-hmm. um, but what strings are attached to that funding, uh, and and you know sort of what access and affordability rights are, are guaranteed or required as a condition of receiving that funding, uh, and the the answer is none. Um, really, as a rule, most governments provide this kind of funding with with no strings attached, and that's true of the Canadian government as well. Um, 
and you know that's that's a model that perhaps in in earlier days uh maybe it made sense you know it was sort of stimulating investment and needed research and development and and you know this is the the vehicle for getting there the reality is we live in a in a world where medicines cost hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient per year now uh, and many of those originate with public funding um and i think you know it's it's quite unfair uh for us to simply have that money go out the door with, without these kinds of conditions uh, being attached. And, and, you know, we have faced many challenges over many, many decades now um, in being able to access medicines that our patients need uh, simply because they're unaffordable. Um, and, and today in, in COVID times uh, where governments are, are opening up tremendous amounts of funding to develop the technologies that, that we need, um, it really doesn't make any sense for that funding to go out uh, and, and to potentially fund significant portions of this development or the manufacturing scale up without some sort of expectation of, of fair pricing um, or that uh, these technologies would be made accessible uh, for people in, in uh, lower income countries to be able to access. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that this is fundamentally a, a conversation that we uh, as, as a country uh, need to be having is, you know, what is the sort of public return on public investment for these kinds of, of technologies? Uh, Ian, I, I, I'm wondering in terms of ma- manufacturing uh, a vaccine, could could Canada actually, like depending on which one it is, could could Canada actually manufacture it, or do we eventually? Have the do we have the eventually? Capacity? Uh, no, uh, we do not have the capacity no. today. Uh, certainly, there are facilities being uh, built. Uh, to support uh, the vaccine candidate uh, being developed by Medicago, uh, which is a plant-based vaccine, uh, which holds a a great deal of promise, and that's a Canadian company. And that company wouldn't exist without the investments that we've talked about. Uh, I think that it's a... it's a, it's a, the challenge of living in a free enterprise capitalistic society is that uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, vaccine manufacturers all have stakeholders and their primary accountability is back to those stakeholders, not to the public uh, that they serve. Uh, they serve stakeholders. So it, it, it is going to be an ongoing challenge to uh, find that happy medium. We've done it uh, in, in areas perhaps not as well as we could have, such as HIV uh, medications and making them more accessible in low and middle income countries. Uh, I think it is part of a kind of a equalization strategy where um, uh, northern uh, high income countries are paying a higher price um, and and so that uh, low and middle income countries can afford to, to access vaccines and other drugs that should be covered in a similar ma- manner. Uh, uh, at least it, you know, when you hear it, the government invests in, in obviously the the research to in the R and D for the the vaccine, but then again, there's no strings attached. Do you think there's too much support for big pharma by governments, whether it be Canada or governments around the world? Um, I mean, governments are 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 placed in a difficult situation. Obviously, mm-hmm. we need the pharmaceutical companies to to develop uh, these vaccines, and I think that. When, the, when we're in the middle of a crisis, the pharmaceutical companies have have uh, um, have a lot of sway in the negotiations. They have a lot of power because they hold the key to to uh, getting us outside of this pandemic. So I think what has what has happened is that, unfortunately, for example, in terms of the vaccines, 
governments have been competing against each other, negotiating with the, with the companies entirely in secret. Of course, we don't know. We know very little about the, 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 the deals that, for example, Canada has made. We don't know exactly when we're going to get the doses. We know the total amount of doses. We don't know how much we're paying. Um, all of these things are secret. And, and, uh, and the pharmaceutical companies are sort of playing the governments a little bit uh, against each other. And that's unfortunate because we shouldn't be competing against each mm. other. We're competing against the virus. Um, so a much more um, a concerted, coordinated effort would be suitable. And the, what's good this time around, there, there is an initiative called uh, COVAX, which is where countries got together with like major global health organizations that sort of said, let's do this together. Let's negotiate as a, 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 a as a block. And that's, support a vast portfolio of, of candidates and then distribute them equitably and in, in, in the most effective way to end the pandemic. But uh, so that's positive. This has happened. It's supported by more than 180 countries, including Canada. Uh, but unfortunately, at the same time, in parallel to this, countries have also struck their bilateral deals and they've also, they also entered into that race to uh, who's going to get the most deals. And, and, um, Quite surprisingly, I would say Canada did quite well. We have a lot of, vac- mm. of, of vaccine options. We have the most per capita in the world, mm. as you were saying, at uh, 10 dose, potential doses per, per person. Of course, they're not all going to initially going to work out. Um, but it, it's unfortunate that it's a competition like that. And I do think that it gives more power to uh, pharmaceutical companies that if, if government just got together and said, hey, you're negotiating with all of us um, rather than playing uh, each other off. What do you think about that, Jason? Well, there's a lot to say. Um, maybe just to, to you know try and, and bring a few of these threads together. Um, you know, coming back to one of the things that early that Ian uh, said earlier, which is that you know there's a number of different vaccine candidates that are being developed right now. Right, we're talking about the three that have have reported uh, results via via press release. We haven't actually seen the the final uh, studies and and the data, but you know if if we uh, take the the press releases uh, at their word, then it certainly sounds like we've got three uh, highly effective, quite promising vaccines. Um, but, you know, as we're, as we're talking about some of these considerations of, of cold chain requirements and dosing regimens and, and that sort of thing, you know, I think that this really gets uh, at the heart uh, for us of, of why it's so important that we have this kind of uh, large scale investment from governments, but also the private sector, because, you know, clearly they've invested as well um, in these kinds of technologies, because not all vaccines are going to be the right vaccine for all age demographics or, you know, for adapted for use in in all different contexts and so on. You know, there's many, many things that I think we're going to learn about how these vaccines work, what they actually do, what kinds of, you know, illnesses they, they prevent. Does that stop someone from getting infected and, and then transmitting the virus? onto somebody else or does it, you know, simply, not simply, but, or does it reduce the severity of the illness? There's a lot of things that we still don't know yet. We're very early on into this. Um, But certainly, you know, one of the reasons that we need this kind of investment is so that we have a lot of tools that are in the toolbox. And for an organization like ours that 
vaccinates uh, populations in very difficult field circumstances, having a vaccine that's heat stable uh, and, and thermostable uh, is incredibly important because we often need to transport things a long distance to, to reach the populations that, that we work with and the communities that we work with. So, you know, I don't think that we can take our foot off the gas pedal yet. I think it's incredibly important that we don't because we actually need a plurality of, of options because they're all going to do slightly different things and that's going to be really important. So, you know, coming back to the the, the vaccine options uh, that that Canada has secured for itself, um, you know, as as we've said a few times now, we're talking about uh, somewhere north of, of 400 million doses for a population of 38 million people. Um, probably some of those are not going to, some of those vaccines are not going to work the as well as, as you know, we we hope that they're going to, um, but you know even with the three that uh, are so far presenting results, um, Canada may very well find itself with with a surplus of of vaccines, um, and so then the question becomes simply one of of basic math of you know if we mm-hmm. if we have more than uh, enough doses to vaccinate 38 million people, what's going to happen to those doses? Um, there's really only I would say one correct answer to that question, which is that they should be given to countries that do not have enough doses. Um, I think that this is, you know, surely nobody can disagree with the idea that uh, we shouldn't be hoarding uh, doses of a vaccine that are in high demand and short supply around the world. Um, And so I think that this is a conversation that we need to be having in, in Canada right now is, you know, if we end up with a surplus, which it looks like, you know, potentially we we might or very well will. Um, what's going to happen to those doses? We shouldn't sit on them. No, that's for uh, sure. Just to add to that as well, the, the real the real problem is that there's not going to be enough supply for a while, for maybe a year or two years. There's not going to be seven, fourteen bill or fourteen right. billion doses uh, if it's a two dose regimen. So, uh, so yes, th- those that are hoarded or kept somewhere in Canada are not are not saving a life, are not ending the pandemic sooner. So it, I completely agree with Jason that it's an important question. And I would say, if the government thinks about that, maybe donating or transferring, um, I hope this conversation or this thinking doesn't happen in six months or a year. Like we shouldn't be sitting on these things uh, while, while you know, healthcare workers, people at risk mm-hmm. in developing countries will not be vaccinated. It needs to, there needs to be a conversation about this uh, very soon. Uh, just to cl- just sure. to clarify, if I may, uh, Canada has options to purchase. They haven't mm. actually purchased a single yeah. dose yet. So course, uh, yeah. my guess is that as uh, vaccine candidates candidates are approved, they will purchase the amount that they need uh, and then release those other uh, options so that they are available to the worldwide market. It's not like we're going to buy all 400 million uh, doses and, and sit on them. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I've, I've heard this comment a, a number of times and I think that what we need is to just say that, right? Like if, if this is the, if this is what, what the Canadian government is, is, presenting us with, then let's just say that, right? Like, let's be clear. We've had a number of analyses showing, okay, Canada's got options to to be able to purchase enough vaccine doses to vaccinate the Canadian population five times. You know, like, then I think let's just be clear about what these these agreements are and, and what they aren't. And if they are options to purchase and Canada's intention is to not over-purchase and over-consume, then great. Let's just say that and let's move on because, you know, we in the 
in the global health community are quite worried about what access is, is going to look like. We know that manufacturing capacity is insufficient to be able to produce, as Elise said, you know, enough doses to vaccinate 7 billion people at the, at the drop of the hat. So let's have just a little bit more transparency and, and clarity into what doses are actually going to be tied up, which ones aren't, um, and, and move the conversation forward because we, we just need to be finding r- realistic and, and pragmatic solutions here. Uh, Ian, Ian it, it, is it not prudent planning on, on behalf of a government to secure as many as, as they need? I was just going to add that at this point, we don't know which of the vaccines on which we have options are actually going to uh, get through phase three trials and be approved. So, yeah, the government can't is hedging its bets. Uh, and, yeah, it, it is going to have to be much more transparent and clear once we know which vaccine candidates are approved for use in Canada. Now, when we talked about um, hoarding, uh, I was talking to uh, Elise about that. And, and you say it's self-defeating, uh, you know, these countries that are stocking up on that. Why is that? Or how is that? Well, because, in fact, the most many, many experts have been saying the most effective way to end the pandemic would be to start uh, by vaccinating the most at-risk people, uh, the elderly, healthcare workers everywhere, rather than going one country by one country, vaccinating every single person in the richest countries and then go backward. If our goal is to end the pandemic sooner, and if our goal is to save as many lives as possible, there was some modeling done by Northeastern University recently that showed that um, uh, fairly distributing the first two or three billion doses across the world would save twice as many lives than if the vaccine is only available uh, in rich countries at first. It also has enormous... Um, enormous um, uh, economic costs because as long as the pandemic rages on in the world, it's going to affect the world economy and therefore uh, the Canadian economy as well. So, so to kind of uh, like uh, lower the transmission, save as many lives as possible, it would be better to start gradually everywhere. But that's probably not what's going to happen now that rich countries, including Canada, have have hedged their bets and 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 got a lot of contracts and. And of course, it's um, it's it's a delicate position that the government is in. Let's not be naive about it. Like, of course, the Canadian government wants to vaccinate all Canadians as quick as possible. Like, that's completely understandable. That's their first uh, role. But what we're trying to say is, let's not forget the rest of the world, and let's make sure that that mm. the most at risk can start getting vaccinated, like in a few months, not two years from now, everywhere in the world. Mm. I think ultimately everyone will benefit. So a lot more investments are needed as well. Um, Canada has invested in, in, in the COVAX facility for um, lower income countries, but much more needed, much more money will be needed. Um, so, so we're going to mm. need more investments uh, soon and we're going to benefit from it ultimately. And, and Jason, regarding COVAX, we've got a, a number of notables that are absent from the table there, the, the U.S., Russia, and China. What kind of concern does that have for you? Well, I mean, look, this is in, in, a number of people have used different analogies, but you know, we're we're effectively building the the airplane as it's as it's flying. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, the the these are are notable countries to have absent, but there's also a, a, a large number of countries who are participating, um, and so. It, you know, there, there's a number of uh, concerns I would say about about Covax, um, and 
maybe concerns isn't the isn't the right word, but certainly the devil is in the details with these kinds of major global health initiatives. But I, I don't think that we should lose sight of the fact that this is a really phenomenal undertaking. I mean, we're we're fundamentally talking about uh, a, a, probably the largest uh, global health procurement initiative uh, for a single medical product that's a, that's ever been attempted, um, and to do that in a way that's guided by an, an equitable access framework and to to put you know. Uh, equitable and access and affordability at the at the center of this initiative that's only a few months old i mean this is a a, a really tremendous uh yeah tremendous undertaking to to be honest um and so you know i think that it's important that we're vigilant and it's important that we ask difficult questions about how uh covax is going to be designed and and how it's going to roll uh things out because we have seen uh with previous um what are called advanced market commitments there's only been one it was for a pneumococcal conjugate vaccine uh, about a decade ago um you know we saw that there there were some important oversights in in uh, in that mechanism. So, for example, there was no humanitarian access mechanism, meaning that when uh, MSF and other humanitarian organizations were needed to purchase uh, pneumonia vaccines directly from the manufacturers, we weren't able to get the the lowest global price, which now is about $3.10. And in fact, we're charged over $60 per dose, uh, which was sort of the going market rate price. And, you know, that's just, uh, it's something that wasn't really thought of as being uh, essential in the design of this thing in the, in the early phases was some sort of humanitarian access mechanism. Mm-hmm. But we vaccinate people who, who can't access health, health systems, either because they're, they're systematically excluded from accessing health services or, you know, they're in a refugee camp or, or uh, many other reasons. Um, and so these are the kinds of things that we and, and others in the global health community are learning from um, and, and and are questioning and are making sure our gaps that are, are going to be addressed and, and that are closed. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of really important initiatives and a lot of important things that we have learned about uh, global health uh, and, and fair access to medicines and, and vaccines over many decades. Um, and, you know, we're pushing for things like transparency into pricing and pushing to make sure that COVAX is negotiating firmly to, to, you know, have the lowest global price that's that's possible um, for these vaccines, because a, a, a fair price is going to increase access. That's mm-hmm. just the the bottom that's, line. Yeah. Uh, Ian, what what lessons did we learn from SARS that might be applied here? Uh, quite honestly, less from SARS, more from H1N1. Uh, okay. There was never a vaccine for SARS, um, and it really became a institution based uh, virus that. Um, had a short shelf life, thankfully. Uh, H1N1 is more along the same lines. Uh, only 40% of Canadians ended up being vaccinated, uh, and it was still a Herculean effort to have that done. So uh, I would say a year from now, when I believe that the real mass vaccination uh, programs are going to be rolling out for the first dose for Canadians, uh, it's going to take a lot of effort. And a lot of people who aren't at the front of the line are going to have to be patient and be good neighbors and let the right people go to the front of the line. Good words to finish with. Thank you very much. I want to thank our guests this evening. Ian Culbert, Executive Director of the Canadian Public Health Agency. Elise Legault is the Policy and Advocacy Manager with ONE. And Dr. Jason Nickerson is the Humanitarian Affairs Advisor with Doctors Without Borders. Coming up on the next Unpublished TV, Are the Kids All Right? The pandemic has had an impact on them and opened up their eyes to more. 
Thanks for watching on Publish TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.